Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 12. In this lesson, you will learn the preposition, and then we will cover 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. A preposition is a word used to express the relationship a substantive employs with its verb, adjective, or another substantive. The word preposition comes from the Latin prepondere, meaning to put before or placed before. Since normally the preposition is placed before the substantive, it should be noted that although the preposition is used before a substantive, it modifies verbs, nouns, or adjectives. Some grammarians speak of prepositions as extended adverbs in that they frequently modify verbs and tell how, when, where, and that sort of thing. Prepositions show direction and location of action. That's their primary function. And are used to bring out more clearly the idea of the case of the noun that it's modifying. As can be seen in the basic function of the noun's form, some prepositions are built into the case, but prepositions express the relation of the verb to the noun. Prepositions in compound words. Prepositions are popular in compound words, particularly verbs of motion. That is something like I come or I go, the erechamai. By adding the preposition, it makes this word a compound and gives it more clarity. For example, ep arachamai means I go away. The di arachamai, I go through. The ice arachamai, I go into or enter. The ek arachamai, I go out of. Pros arachamai, I come to or go to or soon erakamai, I come with. See, it brings out more detail about the direction. This usage may serve to be more precise in direction or location, and sometimes serves to intensify the meaning of the verb. Nearly every preposition may be prefixed to a word in order to add a new idea to the original word or modify it in some way. Now a word about prepositions in case. Prepositions are normally divided into one, two, and three case usage. I list them that way. And furthermore, this organization helps to get the basic meaning of the interaction with the case. This classification, however, should not serve as absolute. Dr. Robinson he says this, It is very difficult, therefore, to make any adequate division of the prepositions by the cases. There are indeed in early Greek two with one case, eight with two, and eight with three cases. But the point to observe is that the usage varies greatly in the course of the centuries and in different regions not to say in the vernacular and in the literary style. Besides, each preposition has its own history and every writer his own idiosyncrasies. For the most part, one can take the root meaning of the preposition as it stands, but since its root meanings accumulated over the years, one must examine the context to understand how it was used by the author. Here's some helpful advice. Dr. Wallace notes this. Whenever any of the oblique cases, that is, the, the cases other than nominative or vocative, follows a preposition, you should examine the use of the preposition rather than the case usage to determine the possible nuances involved. Then Drs. Dana and Manti write this. The best way to determine the meaning of the preposition is to study it in its various contexts and note its various usage. I have listed in the book all the prepositions and have summarized those prepositions in their usage. I just recommend that you go to the book and uh, use that as a reference. Also, um, it's, 
it's very helpful to go to the to the lexicons and see how um, the the lexicon uh, speaks of their usage. That, that's really the the best way to uh, look at that. Take the basic meaning from the case and then derive what the author is speaking about by its context. Always use the context. Let's move on to our text for the day. That is 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. And I hope you have gone to the website and pulled out the detailed analysis from the grammar, the grammar book, and you have that before you, and we can go into this. This section I have titled, Abide in the Truth. To abide in the truth is to keep what was taught from the start ever present on the mind. God does not leave us alone in this new walk, but he gives us the Holy Spirit as teacher and helper to help us discern truth and to live our daily walk. But there are those who seek to deceive us. John warns us to be on guard and abide in the truth of God, which is our only defense against error. So right from the start in verse 24, John speaks of abide in what you heard. Therefore, what you heard from the start, let it remain in you. Uh, remain or abide. Those are used interchangeably. Some translations like the word remain. Some like the historical use, abide. I use them interchangeably, depending on how I feel for the day. But uh, the historical, both words are, are excellent. The traditional abide is, uh, is excellent in that it holds a history. The Apostle declares the most important defense against error is to keep the fundamentals that were given to them from the start. The importance of the phrase is that which is heard. As hearing is placed at the head of the phrase and repeated twice, the address is directed to the little children. Since the pronoun continues the discourse to those already addressed, namely you, that's the uh, the plural there, the second person plural. And it serves as the subject of the phrase. In fact, some translations place the stress upon the pronoun and translate it as for you. This emphasizes its emphatic use and hence makes this effectively evocative. In typical Greek fashion, the conjunction on, then, or therefore provides the reason and serves to answer the question, what did you hear? The heiress of Akuo, you heard, says only that whatever you heard occurred in the past. Furthermore, what they heard was ap arches, from the arcade, from the start, the beginning, the origin of their new life as believers. What they heard is commanded to remain uh, that minnow, it's a present active imperative, third singular, to remain or abide, or as a present tense communicates, continue to remain. Since this is an imperative, the sense is to command a continuous holding on to the truth. So most translate using the traditional third person imperative, let it remain in you. However, the sense might better be conveyed by it must remain in you. Both have this imploring, but it must remain in you, uh, communicates that desperation in reliance upon the truth to protect one from error. If what you heard from the start remains in you, indeed you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Here the conditional particle aim, if or in case, holds the key to the little children's spiritual growth. If they hold onto the fundamental truth, they will not be fooled by the false teachers and will mature through their trials. That is how the Christian walk works. Sanctification does not work apart from the Word of God. The thing that they knew from the start is to remain positionally in them. You might say continuously refreshing in them. Notice the similarity with fellowship in 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, 
that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. The Greek word to remain now moves to the aorist subjunctive of minnow. It can be translated, If what you heard from the start might remain in you, it moves a believer from the everlasting command to hold on to the word of God to the daily walk of the believer, to walk in the word, to rely upon him in all truth. The truth, again, is that truth that was heard, the akuo there, the aorist active indicative second person plural, to hold on to the truth from the start. Op arches. The certainty of the believer's security is left up to God. Notice that. The command is to remain in the word. You might say to continue recalling the gospel of your salvation. Then comes the experiential walk in the word. And then finally, moves to the future work of the Father. That is a salvation that He starts in you, He will bring to its conclusion. That is how salvation works. It has all three aspects. The past, present, and future. The phrase starts with a conjunction chi, continuing or expanding on the previous thought. Now the teaching involves a position you have as a believer, that is to say, you continue to be in Christ. In this case, the expression is in, the preposition in or with, the weos, the, uh, the dated masculine singular, with the definite article, with the Son. And being in the Son is likewise the same as being in the Father, since both are ruled by this preposition in. Finally, notice the son, both the Son and the Father have the future verb minnow. See that? In, in verse 24, we have all three moods and all three tenses. The first is a command, the imperative. Remain in the gospel. That's the present tense in the now. The second use, the subjunctive, that's the experience. Walk in the gospel, that's the aorist tense, it's timeless. And then finally, the indicative in the future. The indicative speaking of that reality, you will remain in the Father and the Son. Speaking of fellowship. So, look at that future verb meno, future active indicative second plural, to remain or to abide. That's their controlling verb of both the Father and the Son. This is a progressive future, meaning that the expected outcome is progressive. The indicative is the mood of reality, indicating the reality of remaining in the Son and the Father. It is really happening. Notice the progression of moods from a command to remain in the Word and the Spirit of God, to the experiential walk in the Word and Spirit of God, finally to the reality of continuous fellowship with God. There are two things that are different about the fellowship aspect of this verse. First, the Son is listed before the Father, which is not the normal order in Scripture. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is left out altogether. It seems that John wants to highlight the deity or the equality aspect of the Son, possibly, to further stress the deity of Christ. As for the Holy Spirit, He is the Anointed One, indwelling the believer and is forever present with the believer as a prominent agent working in us progressively through the sanctifying work by testing and guiding and convicting. We can, however, grieve the Holy Spirit in our daily walk, but never so much that He will leave. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did leave people. But with the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit is promised, indwells, and does not leave. That is the guarantee and the sealing aspect of the giving of the Holy Spirit. At the point of salvation, the believer is indwelt, baptized, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing we can do to make him leave us for his indwelling presence is a promise and a gift 
so that we have no say in that. That is the difference of the new covenant. It's not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It is the new covenant. But we do have a say in our daily walk. And that walk involves the newfound freedom we have in obeying the word. There is the human side, the command to remain in the things of God. Then there is the divine side, the certainty of you remaining in both the Father and the Son. This verse, however, speaks of one's fellowship with God. This is a verb of possibility, and the believer can be out of fellowship with God. This verse is one of the most exciting of all Scripture, holding the promise that the one who holds strong to the Word and Spirit of God will indeed have a proper walk and relationship with God. This is, in a very real sense, the regulator of sin. The restrainer of sin is the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, abiding in the Father and Son has a promise. Here's what he says. And this is the promise that he himself is promising us eternal life. In order to finish this great thought concerning abiding in him, the author adds the great promise of eternal life. When John spoke of the promise in chapter 1, the word promise was translated as the message. Here's what it said in 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message. That's the same word as promise there. This is the message or the promise which you have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's the promise there in chapter 1. That God is light and there's no darkness at all in him. In chapter 1, the promise has to do with trusting that God's word is true. Now, the emphasis is placed on his faithfulness of that promise. The demonstrative hutas, this, serves to point out this great truth. Notice it is a feminine demonstrative pointing to the word promise. And further, the promise is made clear by the double use of the word. First as a noun, then as a verb. Apangala, that's the noun feminine singular, with the definite article. It's the promise that he apangalo, he erst middle indicative, he himself promised. It's a promise from God, and it is sure. It speaks of a promise that will come to fruition. The promise he has given to us is eternal life. And the object of the promise is the life. Uh, notice that's the, uh, the adjective feminine singular with the definite article, the life. What we possess is described as everlasting. As the adjective ionos uh, is also a feminine singular with the definite article, uh, meaning without beginning or end eternal, without an end, and it modifies life and is highlighted by the double use of the definite article for both life and eternal. One might translate the life, the eternal life, thus emphasizing the quality of life as temporal, and in fact it's everlasting, in fellowship with the Lord. The fellowship aspect cannot be separated from possession of eternal life as Jesus links not only the everlasting aspect, but the new life we possess with God starts at the point of salvation. Notice John chapter 17, verse 3 defines this. This is eternal life. This is the definition of eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, that defines eternal life. It has to do with knowing God and living a life, a new life in God. There are some who teach that this section teaches that eternal life is conditional upon one's abiding in the Word. The grammar, however, does not place a condition on eternal life. And in fact, the aorist middle points to something that is independent of man and places the promise all upon God. 
Our salvation is never dependent on anything we do, but is holy in what God does and is based upon His Word, and hence His character. The questions are, can God go back on His promise, and can man interfere with His plan? The condition of verse 24 has to do with our daily walk. The statement of verse 25 has to do with the sovereignty of God and His promise of eternal life. The conjunction that starts the verse continues the thought of the conditional, but is a statement of fact that the promise of God is that He has sent His Spirit to indwell the believer in order to give him or her a new ability in the new life with Christ to listen to his word, to abide in him. The conjunction that starts the verse continues the thought of the conditional, but it is a statement of fact that the promise of God is that he has sent his spirit to indwell the believer in order to give him or her a new ability in the new life with Christ to listen to his word, that is, to abide in him. Verse 26, I wrote these things to you concerning those who lead you astray. The purpose of writing this section is identified as concentrating on the subject of exposing the doctrines that are promoted by the Antichrist. As before, the demonstrative pronoun hutas These things, the neuter plural, is in the neuter expressing the multiple ways of determining the identification of the Antichrist. That is, the perversion of the truth and separation of fellowship. But now the aorist of to write, the grapho, aorist active indicative first person singular, indicates the current writing as the context demands and is an epistolary aorist, meaning you will see that I wrote when you get and read this letter. That's what Linsky says. John has already written concerning these things, and this letter serves to highlight the spread of the deception. Again, the address is to whomen, the personal pronoun second plural to you all. It's a dative sense there, meaning the little children. But its warning is applicable to all and in fact serves as a warning to us today. The subject concerns, the peri, that preposition peri, concerns those who are leading others astray as the preposition modifies the subject of the participle planaro. It's a genitive masculine plural participle present active. And it has a definite article, to lead astray or to deceive you. The present participle conveys the idea that the Antichrist's mode of operation is as false teachers, actively deceiving at the time of writing, and they continue to deceive, for that is their manner, their state of being. They are known as deceivers. That's what the participle means. It places them as a state of being as deceivers. Verse 27 brings us back to the abiding presence and the fact that he will teach you. And you, the anointing which you receive from him, it abides in you. And in an effort to continue the encouragement to the little children, John says, Kai humes to charisma, Ha elambete, and the anointing which you all received. Again, the conjunction continues the thought while the plural pronoun hemis, second nominative plural of you, points back to and identifies the target audience as a little children. The you then should be viewed as a vocative, and you. This expresses the exhortation that is meant by the phrase. The apostle means to exhort them to know where they stand as they receive their anointing, not just from anyone, but from God himself. The anointing, charisma, 
has a definite article, and it's anything smeared on. It's an anointing or an ointment, and it is definite and is the subject of the phrase, which is augmented by the use of the relative pronoun hos. Who, or uh, you, you would say who if it's a person, or which if an object. In this case, it's a neuter and most likely indicating purpose as opposed to the person of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, they received the anointing in the past as lambano, that second aorist active indicative, you receive occurred in the past. The anointing has its source or origin, apo, from him. The pronoun is singular, atus, of or from him, but serves to point to both the Son and the Father, since both are tightly linked in this section, that one cannot separate the Son from the Father in the grammar. In you defines the sphere of the action, as the preposition in says, that within you, in this, in your sphere of life, you might say, you now live anointed by God, set apart to God, given the Holy Spirit, so that within each believer is the capability to rightly discern the truth of God for the purpose of speaking truth. That's what that anointing brings out. So further, this anointing is permanent, as the verb meno is the present active indicative, communicates and means the anointing continues to remain in you. For the child of God, this anointing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent possession that the believer may temporarily turn away from. But its outcome, namely that separation, can never be permanent. Sin separates the believer from God, but it seems that grieving the Holy Spirit need not be permanent, and God has provided a way for sin to be dealt with. Repentance confession, and prayer all serve to reconcile the sinner back to God. The life of the child of God is a process and involves a process of sanctification. Man is not God. He cannot be faithful. He is a sheep who strays, but God never strays and is faithful and true, caring for those he loves all the time, even when we are faithless. The verse continues with the second phrase, and you do not need to hold to that which a certain one is teaching you. Speaking of the deceiver. In fact, the purpose of sanctification involves the law of abiding in him. In him is security and purity of heart. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. So that if we, as children of God, Hold on to what is pure and true. These things that we were taught from the start will not let any error that is taught by the false teachers stick with us. As has been the case of this long thought, the conjunction chi continues this unbroken thought. In fact, this might better be translated, and you have no business holding on to that which is taught you by the Antichrist. The word for need is related to the word for grace. And here is the feminine noun, charia, need, duty, or business. The controlling verb is the verb echo, and it's a present active indicative. You have or to hold. And it implies that the Antichrist are active and are very convincing in some way, so much so that their teaching has spread. But they, as believers, do not have to let their teaching get a foothold in their mind. This is emphasized by the Hina clause. Or in this case, the conjunction works with the indefinite pronoun tis, a certain one or some, meaning that a certain one is didasko, is teaching. And the teaching is extended to the object, which in this case is you. They have no need of error. They have the pure word of God, the fundamentals that cannot be compromised. 
The next phrase, but as the same anointing is teaching you about all things. The contrastive conjunction Allah, but, points out the contrast between the one who teaches you truth, that is the Holy Spirit, and those who teach falsely, or any man who teaches you. The adverb has, as, like, or even as, points to the relationship the subject, that is the Holy Spirit, has with the believer. The Holy Spirit's current ministry with the believer is one of teaching and convicting. This one who is teaching continues in that ministry throughout the believer's life, causing growth and spiritual maturity. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's what John 14, 25, 26 says. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The pronoun atus, it, in this case, it's a neuter. It could be masculine, him, but it, I translate that as neuter. With the definite article, often is translated as the same and serves to point out the subject that is the one teaching. The one teaching is the one who is actively involved in the anointed believer's life. That is, the Holy Spirit teaches. The anointing is the neuter, charisma, anything smeared or anointed, and is the subject, whereas the object is you, making this absolutely clear and simple. One can only include the subject-verb-object construction to make it simple. This becomes... The anointing teaches you. How simple can it get? If you just throw away everything else and keep the subject, verb, object, you come up with the anointing teaches you. Can it get any easier? The Holy Spirit is a lifelong helper, teaching the believer spiritual truth as the present tense of didasco, present active indicative, to teach, says... Finally, what is taught has to do with all that the believer needs to know concerning the truth of Jesus Christ. The preposition limits and further defines the adjective all things. So the preposition peri, concerning or about, limits that adjective all things. And it's an, again, it is a neuter plural genitive, indicating those same things that were learned from the start that John has reminded them about. In other words, all things has a limited meaning that is taken from the context. And that context is limited to the fundamentals that John has been addressing so far in the letter. This last phrase of verse 27, And is truth and is no lie, and even as I taught you, you will remain in him. This is a very clumsy, very long verse, and I have broken it up, and sometimes it, it, it seems to be out of, uh, uh, as fragments, uh, but it just is so long, it's very hard to uh, come up in, in clean segments. So the thought continues, as the anointing that is received possesses truth. In fact, he says, is truth and is not a lie. The word for truth is the Greek aletheos, a compound for negative a, the alpha, meaning not, and lanthano, to be hidden. So it's not hidden, is what the truth is. You might say the truth is not hidden, and in fact continues to be in a state of being, that uh, transitive verb ami is used. It continues to be not hidden, as God has opened the eyes of the mind to the truth, and it is still present within you. Along those same lines of argumentation, with the anointing there is no lie. Or there does not exist within the anointing a pseudos, a lie. And accordingly, the anointing taught you shows the action now expressed as the didasco, that aorist active indicative, he taught, means at some point in the past he taught you. 
Most likely at the point of your salvation, you understood the gospel of your salvation and it was the Holy Spirit that brought you to that understanding. He is the one who taught us, that's the aorist, and continues to teach, that's the present, as the tenses of these verbs bring out in this verse. The believer's position is repeated, being secure in God as the future tense of meno, to remain or abide, is used to indicate our future state in him. As before in verse 24, the future use of abiding in him speaks of relationship or fellowship with everything we do. Our relationship may be good with God today, but what about tomorrow? Will we listen to those opposed to Christ or to the anointing? We have a choice, but it is our responsibility to listen to God. Moving on to verse 28. Abiding means we will not be ashamed. Here's what he says. And now, little children, abide in him in order that when he appears, we might have confidence. The Apostle John means to encourage them now as the adverb noon, now or at this time, moves the conversation toward an exhortation to abide in Christ. The typical case of address for technon, a little child, is used identifying this subject addressed. This address is to the little children, but its application may extend to all believers as all believers are commanded to minnow, to remain, that's an imperative, in atu, in him, that is, in Christ. The personal pronoun points back to God, but in particular to Christ, as John highlights Christ's pre-existent condition. To abide in Christ means to stay in communion or fellowship with him. It is a command meaning there is possibility that we can be out of fellowship with God. But the fix is to confess our sin before our Savior, and He is faithful to forgive us our sins. The Hena Purpose Clause is now presented as anticipating the appearance of Jesus and our state of confidence before Him at His appearance. Whether that appearance is in heaven upon our death as we go to be with the Lord or at the rapture when he returns to gather his church up in the air. The time aspect is given in the abstract as the conjunction paton, when or whenever, is placed with the subjunctive from phanero. In fact, it's an aorist passive subjunctive to make manifest, make known, or be visible. This places his visible appearance as an event, not a definite time marked out. The verb is passive, indicating his appearance has its focus not upon him, but rather upon us. There is possibility for his appearance to us in more than one location. This is also possible by the aorist tense that speaks of its action as timeless, Not everyone will meet the Lord face-to-face at the same time in the same place. Those who die will meet Him in heaven, while those who are raptured will meet Him in the air. This form, however, is a third-class condition expressing certainty that He will indeed appear. Those who are saved will be with the Lord. That's the certainty. The concept of possibility extends to our confidence as the subjunctive of echo, a present activist subjunctive, first person plural, we have or hold conveys. The possibility of having confidence in our actions on earth is dependent upon our fellowship with God. This speaks of mankind's faithfulness to God. God is faithful. But it is man who is unfaithful, even though one may be saved and possess the Holy Spirit as helper and teacher, man is unfaithful. That is the story of mankind. In every dispensation, man fails. 
In the garden, man failed to obey God's simple instruction. As a result, we have a fallen world. In the age of self-government, man failed to obey God's instruction of self-government. Scattering throughout the earth was his command. As a result, we have different languages. In the dispensation of law, God's chosen people failed God's instruction to follow his law. As a result, the Jew is dispersed throughout the earth. Even in the church age, man will fail to be faithful and the great apostasy of the church will be the result. False teachers will continue. Man is not infallible, but God is. Man is not independent, but God is. Man is not impeccable, but God is. God is the one who is perfect, not man. So there is possibility in man's confidence when he faces his maker. Will the individual have paration, freedom of speaking, uh, a boldness, a confidence before a holy God? This is an incredible statement as the word used here is literally all speech and means unreservedness of utterance. Is it possible that a faithful man or woman can have an absence of fear in speaking boldly before God? The answer here is yes. It is not possible to have any confidence at all when one comes before a holy God who is truly white, except that we see the red blood and know that he died for us. We are his and we know that nothing could break that love that he has for us. Dr. McGee writes this, A Christian ought to live in the light of the imminent coming of Christ. If you tell me today that he is not coming for another ten years, then I do not need to worry about today, and I can be a little careless in my living. But if he might come today, if he came right at this moment, he would catch me preparing the Bible study, And that would be fine. I hope he will come at a time like that. But I don't know when he will come. What a statement from Dr. McGee. The imminency of our Lord and how we live our life, knowing that he could come at any moment. What a a blessing that is to our way of life and our thinking. The second phrase of verse 28, And we may not be ashamed before him in his coming. To finish the thought, John adds another passive subjunctive for not being ashamed. The Greek, eis akuntomen, eris passive subjunctive, first person plural, to disfigure, eis, that, that is to disgrace, dishonor, or shame, moves to the passive as we might not be ashamed. The preposition with the uh, ablative, apo, with atu, is separation from him and has the meaning and not shrink away from him in shame. That's how the NASB translates it. The most translate the preposition spatially as before him. But the idea has more to do with our shame and dishonor before a holy God, which moves us to hide away, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. They did not do right, so they sought to cover themselves to hide themselves in shame, desiring to separate themselves from the Lord. The temporal aspect is given in the abstract as a preposition in or at Christ's appearance brings out. The parosa means the presence. It has that definite article there. It's, It's specific. The presence, the arrival, and is built upon the compound before, near, and I am. Hence the term I am near, In the Old Testament, I am near, served the people of God as they journeyed in the wilderness. And the Lord's appearance was with them in a cloud above the tabernacle. It guided and provided for them in our wilderness wandering. In the New Testament, the word served the people of God as a source of comfort. That God's righteousness will finally come to pass as Christ will come and gather his people to himself in safety and security for all eternity.
In this context, the word simply means his presence. When we will meet him, whether it be when we die and go to be with him, or at the rapture when we meet him in the air. At any rate, how will our confidence be at his coming? Will all our works be burned up at the Bema seat? where our good works are judged, or will there be some works that survive the test? Are we sincere in our faith and in our walk? Finally, in verse 29, our identity is in practicing His righteousness. The first verse, if you have come to know that He is righteous, the conditional ain if introduces this last important clause concerning one's standing before God. The perfect subjunctive of Ido, perfect active subjunctive, second plural, to see or to know, forms the third class condition, and it speaks of the absolute certainty through experience, hence seeing the truth in the mind, that those who have in the past understood that God is righteous in sending His Son in the flesh and giving us salvation through his substitutionary atonement, which forms the gospel message, that this person who knows that truth has indeed become begotten of God. Knowledge is perfected in that it is God himself who has opened the heart of man to the understanding of the message, since it is foolishness to those who are not born again by God. This is the doctrine of illumination. That says the Spirit illuminates the believer concerning the gospel message that God took. This is the doctrine of illumination that says that the Spirit illuminates the believer concerning the gospel message that God took on flesh and came into the world. Dying as the perfect Lamb of God was buried and resurrected for our justification. What a wonderful message. But the message is foolishness to the world and a stumbling block to the Jew. But it is declared righteous by God to those who believe as declared righteous, and their works are called righteous. Chief of which is belief in the message, and secondly, sharing that message with others. And finally, being a living example in obedience to the commands of God, which brings fellowship or it results in fellowship. What you might have known forms this inclusio of thought that started with the opening verses of the chapter. starts with perfected knowledge. And he gives us this summary statement in the first first verses. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. But by this we may know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself ought to walk just as he walked. That's that perfected knowledge that begins the chapter and ends the chapter. The conjunction ati, that, because, since, is very common following verbs of knowing, seeing, saying, and feeling. Thus this serves to introduce the objective clause, a realization of objective truth. That objective truth is that God is didakas, righteous, observing divine laws, or he is just. In fact, the transitive verb, I me, means that God in his very being is righteous in all he is and does. He is in a state of being righteous. In the final phrase of Verse 29, you know that everyone that does righteousness has been born of him. The second use of the hati 
brings out another objective truth that you all, Ginosko, you all know or come to know or you understand that every man that does righteousness is begotten of God. The present participle of poeo, uh, it has a definite article, to make or do, has the aspect of a person who, knowing this objective truth, is one that does righteousness or lives a righteous life. The word diraskosun, righteousness, uh, it's, uh, is a feminine noun and is the object of the phrase. We are to direct our mind to his righteousness in begetting us, giving us new life in him as we are born again. The source of our born-again status is given as being ek, that preposition, out of or from him. The preposition is the ablative of source and placed before the verb genao. It's a perfect passive indicative third-person singular. To beget or be born. Uh, metaphorically to engender and in a Jewish sense of one who brings others over to his way of life to convert someone. The perfect passive means that God has performed the work of begetting us and that it is in reality, that's that indicative, it is in reality complete. We have been born from above a new creature for his work of righteousness on earth. Those who are born again perform the work he has given us. The righteousness spoken of here has to do with abiding in his truth that he has given us from the start. The gospel should never be compromised, never confused, never changed. The Apostle Paul also had to deal with this in his letter to the Galatians. Here's what he wrote. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Paul had to deal with that in the church at Galatia. In Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8, the same error was permeating through the early church. All the letters in the New Testament have to do with addressing error and the false teaching that gets into the church and comes into the church. And they're all described as Antichrist. Uh, the false teachers has its source, you might say, in the Antichrist. And so it's a principle of Antichrist that false teaching abounds today. I hope you have enjoyed translating in this lesson. So go and Translate the first part of chapter 3 and come back for the next lesson.